0: Today, we are continuing our series on the profile of a mature believer. For those of you who are visiting with us for the first time, for the last few weeks and months uh, of this year, we have been looking at the subject of maturity, of growing in Christ, because Paul, in Colossians 1.28, describes his ministry, describes The aim of his ministry as being, we admonish everyone and we proclaim to everyone so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And we at Park Hills Baptist Church this morning and this year, we're looking at what that maturity looks like. How do you know if you are maturing as a believer? How do you know that you are on the way to grow as a believer? It is not simply about becoming a Christian. It is not simply about becoming a follower of Christ. It is about becoming more like Christ. Well, today, we are touching upon a subject that is very sensitive to many Christians, and especially to many disenchanted Christians. So far in our series, we have been looking at Six notions, six characteristics of our relationship to God, of our communion with God. Then a few weeks ago, we began looking at some characteristics that relate to how we form community with other believers. You see, dear friends, it's not enough that we simply commune with God, that we have a personal relationship with God. A personal relationship with God also puts us in a relationship with other Followers of God and puts us automatically in God's family. So, communion with God, community with other believers. Today is the last characteristic of of what it means to be in community with other believers. And next week, we will start the final category, the final part of the series of what it means to be commissioned to the world. But today, we're finishing the last characteristic. Of what it means to be in community with other believers, it is a very sensitive subject. So, so sensitive that one of the friends that I was talking to this week, um, I told him he, he's. Uh, I told him he might not want to come this week to church because I'll be talking about money, and I don't want to give him the impression that the church is about money. I know as a pastor, I shouldn't be discouraging people from coming to church, but this is a very sensitive subject. Here's why. A few reasons. It is not uncommon for churches in the West to feel like they are on a treadmill called fundraising. There's always another building to build. There's always another project to renovate there's always another expansion to make. It is not uncommon for churches or Christian ministries to focus so much on asking money that they're willing to promise almost anything in return for a donation. It's not uncommon to see emotional triggers or guilt mechanisms or even exaggeration of results in order to get a donation. None of these, dear friends, none of these techniques are endorsed by Scripture. Yet giving is. Disenchanted Christians often walk away from the institutional church with a feeling that churches are all about money. One friend shared with me the reaction of his parents when he told them that he is becoming a Christian. And his parents told him, watch out son, they're after your money. So how can we Christians talk about money and how can we talk about the scriptural attitude towards money or towards giving without feeding into the impression that the church is a hu- money-hungry institution. I encourage you to open Scripture to 2 Corinthians chapter, chapters eight and nine. We will be reading the entire two chapters. No, that was a test. We will be reading, though, from verse 1 to 9 in chapter 8, and then we will move to chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. It is a longer passage of Scripture, but I encourage you to pay attention to how Scripture, how the Apostle Paul talks about giving in a way that I think does not feed into this notion that that church is all about money. The title of this message is Graceful Giving. Graceful Giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now we continue the reading of God's Word from chapter 9, verse 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen. Well, this was the word of the Lord for us. I encourage you to bow our heads and pray for this word and for our hearts. Father, we praise you because at the heart of your love for us, you gave your only begotten Son. We praise you because you are a God who gives, and you have given us more than we can ever give back. Father, I pray that we would learn to resemble your character as we ourselves become givers. This we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we learn about the situation that caused Paul to write these two chapters in Corinth, in the letters of the Corinthians. We learn about the situation from the verses that we did not read. Believe it or not, why did we not read those verses? Because I can summarize them for you. Here's what happened. It appears that the Corinthian church committed themselves to do a love offering, committed themselves to raise some funds for saints in other regions of the world that that were going through severe poverty. A year earlier from the writing of this letter, they committed to do this. But a year has passed, and the collection has not yet been made. Have you ever been put in a situation where you commit to do something and time goes by and that commitment still stays commitment? No action. This is something what happened here in Corinth. And Paul has to do that which is sensitive for every Christian to hear. It is hard for every pastor to to do. It's the reminder to those believers about giving. Now what does this passage teach us? Christians in the 21st century, about giving. There's numerous things that we could look at. It's a long text, but I would only look this morning at three points. Here's three aspects that Paul wants to teach us about giving. It's sensitive, but I think it's challenging. Truth number one, is that giving is a reflection of grace. Giving is a reflection of grace. Now, from the beginning of chapter 8 to the end of chapter 9, one of the overarching themes in these two chapters is God's grace. Look at the way chapter 8 begins. Verse 1. Now, brothers we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. And then look at how chapter 9 ends, verses 14 and 15. It says, And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God. For his indescribable gift. And throughout these chapters, the appeal to God's grace is made five more times. Now what is surprising is that Paul is not using the techniques we often do for raising money. Paul is not saying, if you give your 10% to God, God will give you more. Such appeals sound like lottery. You give a little and God will give you more. That's idolatrous. Scripture never encourages us to give to God with the motivation that we would get more from God. Sometimes God will do that, but the motivation should never be that. Paul also. Does not claim that the Corinthians should, quote, give their part, as if the church is a club in which you pay your membership. The major point on which Paul appeals to the Corinthians for reminding them about giving is this giving is a reflection of God's grace. Some of you may say, how? How is giving a reflection of God's grace? The first answer is that the Christian giving is rooted in God's grace. It's rooted in God's grace. That's why Paul in in verse 8 of chapter 8, he says, I am not commanding you to give, But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we cannot make someone becoming more generous. We cannot commend others to give. Well, let me pause. Some churches are trying to. But Paul says, I am not commanding you to give. What Scripture does instead is to remind believers of God's grace. Because only when we understand God's grace will that grace change our attitudes towards ourselves and towards our money. And God's grace was most vividly displayed in Jesus Christ. God's grace was most vividly displayed in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says in verse 9 of chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you may say, what was that? Here's what he says. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That is God's grace. Here's a point that distinguishes the generosity of believers from the generosity of non-believers. Dear friends, there are a few people out there who are not Christians, who could be very generous. There are people out there in your life who might not be believers, followers of Christ, who might just have a very generous heart. I think sometimes they give us Christians a challenge for us to be more generous. But you can be generous without being a follower of Christ. And yet, what's the distinction between the generosity that Christians ought to have, the generosity that Scripture encourages us to have, and the generosity of non-believers. Here's the difference. Generosity of of non-Christians, of non-believers, they want to help because they want to see others succeed. They want to alleviate the poverty level of others. They want to see others grow. So it's usually a desire to help others because it's great to see others grow. They may also give because it's, it's great to give. It gives you a good feeling when you're able to give. All these things are good reasons to give without necessarily being a Christian. And yet, there is something else there is another reason that stands behind our motivation to give that non-Christians cannot have it. Only Christians can do. Only Christians can have this reason, and that is God's grace. The one difference that will make be, that will be between Christians and non-Christians in their giving is God's grace. And God, the grace of God is that Christ gave himself so that we might have life. We may know this with our mouths. We may know this with our minds. But until we understand it, until it sinks in, we will not get it. So beautiful yesterday, the testimony we heard of Alice's life although she knew the truths of Scripture, although she knew those stories of Scripture, until those truths sunk in, they did not make a difference in her life. We may know about the grace of God, but until we know the grace of God, it will not transform our lives. Now, when we truly understand the grace of God our response is nothing but this we respond with self surrender to the Lord the only true and the most basic response to the grace of God is our total surrender to God Martin Luther the great reformer said the following about the grace of God. and said to God in response to His grace, You, O oh God, are my goodness, and I was your punishment. You assumed everything I deserved and was, so I can receive everything you deserve and are. When we realize This grace of God, it changes the way we see ourselves. It melts away all our pride. It melts our trust and hope in our own selves, in our own possessions, so that when we truly understand the grace of God, our only basic response is our total surrender to the Lord. Here's why. Because we realize that nothing that we have is worth anything in comparison with what He gave us. That's why, dear friends, God's grace meets you wherever you are. No matter what you've been going through in your life. No matter what you've had in your past. It does not matter whether it was a good past or a bad past whether you are ashamed of it or whether you're proud of it. When we understand the grace of God, what God gives us, everything in our lives is nothing. God's grace meets us where we are, but God's grace does not leave us where we are. It cannot leave us where we are. you know why? Just as Luther said, I was poor. You made me rich. You got what I deserve so that you can give me what you alone deserve. When God's grace meets you, just like Paul said to the Corinthians, Christ became poor so he might make you rich. Not in your bank accounts, my dear friends. Gospel never promises that your bank accounts will grow. That is a false gospel. But God will make you rich in Christ. Now for many unbelievers and some believers, when they think of the grace of God, they only assume God's acceptance. But this is an incomplete picture. God's grace is His act of giving His only Son for us so that we might be made like Him. That's God's grace. My dear friend, the one way, the one test that you truly understood the grace of God is if you understand that God gave Himself to you so that He can make you like Himself. That's God's grace. Let me ask you this morning, have you accepted God's gift of His Son for your life? God's grace is not simply the fact that God accepts you. God's grace is the fact that God gave Himself for you. God's grace is an act of giving. And unless you receive this gift of God, Through faith and repentance, you cannot experience the gift of transformation. And this is how this grace affects us. One of the ways this grace affects us and transforms our lives shows up in the way we give. God's grace shows up in our lives in the way we give. And notice the example that Paul brings in this passage that we read. He's bringing the church in Macedonia as an example of God's grace. You know, we're told that believers in Macedonia were in the most severe trial. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. And we're told that they were in extreme poverty. Yet, God's grace showed up in the fact that despite their a condition of extreme poverty they had an overflowing joy. Look at verse 2 out of the most severe trial their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty. Now let me pause there for a moment can you go through extreme poverty and also have ex- an overflowing joy in your life Those of you who have been on mission trips or have visited less developed countries and have seen Christians with having significantly, significantly less material possessions, and yet they own and possess a joy that we Christians in, West, in the Western Hemisphere cannot explain. That's the grace of God. That's the grace of God who transforms the way you look at yourself in despite the fact that you have very little, you overflow with joy because you feel like you're rich. That's the grace of God. And then Paul goes and talks about the Macedonians, and he continues to, to say, this grace was present in Macedonia so much so that their overflowing joy overcame their context of poverty and resulted in rich generosity. Can you be generous in extreme poverty? The Macedonians did. Their overflowing joy overcame their extreme poverty and resulted in generosity. That's the grace of God. You cannot explain it any other way. Not only so, but look at verses 3 and 4. Look at how they ended this fundraising campaign. And by the way, just pause here. I can see all, the, all these church consultants today uh, taking notes. So how do you do this? Look at how the church in Macedonia entered this fundraising campaign. Verses 3 and 4. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. In other words, they had this desire on their own. Nobody asked them to do so. Actually, notice it says they pleaded with us for the privilege. No financial campaigns yet a very generous giving how did they do this dear friends this is not an example of the church that is constantly asking for money this is not the church that is constantly talking about money this is the church that they were just giving these are believers who are just out of their own initiative with their with their own joy they just started giving how did they do this can our church consultants replicate this no you cannot replicate this we cannot replicate the spirit of generosity you know why because this is an act of grace. This is rooted in grace, and this is a result of grace. You cannot make people give this way. No matter what mechanisms, no matter what emotional triggers you would use, no matter what guilt mechanisms you would use, you cannot get people to you to give this way, because this is an act of grace. Verse 5. What did these Macedonians do? Bottom line is, they truly understood grace. They truly understood God's grace. You you know how we know that they truly understood God's grace? Look at verse 5. Before they gave, verse 5 tells us, And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. This is God's grace. This is a sign that you have understood truly God's grace. When we are affected by His grace, when we realize that we, what He truly did for us, our first and most basic reaction is we give ourselves to Him. Not because, quote, we have to, but we, because we can no longer remain the same. We cannot help But give ourselves to Him. And by using these two examples, the the example of Christ who gave Himself, who became poor so that we might become rich, and then the example of this Macedonian church who is telling us, you can do it. It's possible. When you understand grace, that's what grace does to you. Paul is rooting the act of giving in God's grace. Dear friends, dear brothers and sisters, when we think about giving to the church or giving to God, we don't give in order to pay our part. We don't give in order that we may keep our membership on the rolls of this church. We don't ask, do I really need to give this much? Paul is not saying those things. When we give the only foundation for our giving, the only generosity for our giving, the only foundation for our generosity is we contribute to the needs of others because we understand that God has given himself to us. And that's how this entire section of, of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 ends. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. God didn't give us 10%. God did not even give us 90%. God gave His only begotten Son. Thanks be to God. That's why our giving is rooted in God's indescribable gift. Christian giving has this characteristic. It is graceful giving. Because every time we give, we are encouraged and we have an occasion to reflect God's gift as we give. That's why, as we give, the only giving I'm encouraging you to give is graceful giving. Now, there's a second characteristic of this passage about giving. It is, giving is an occasion for joy. Giving is an occasion for joy. The gospel is God's God's free gift. We don't pay money in exchange of receiving the hope of eternal life. But when we understand the grace of God, this grace cleanses us of the idolatries of our own hearts so that our hearts take initiative to give, like the Macedonians, and to give with joy. See Paul's principle in in verse 7 of chapter 9. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart, to give, not reluctantly, nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver." Now think for a moment of Zacchaeus. Jesus came into his house, into his home, and Zacchaeus responded, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Now the point here is clearly not that if you give your possessions away, you will be saved. Far from that. We know that is not the way to be saved. But the point is that when Christ comes into the household of our hearts, We understand the grace of God, and we become givers ourselves. We take the initiative. We initiate, and we do it with joy. There is no room for compulsory giving. Now, it is easy for Christians to fall into this notion today that they have to give to the church. No, you don't have to. Paul here is saying that God is not interested merely in your giving. If you're giving reluctantly or if you're giving under compulsion, you might not give at all because you misunderstand the whole point about giving. Now I know what some of you guys are thinking. Yes, this is the church I'll join. They are not asking money. I'll tell all my friends, finally, I found the church I want to join. Well, look at verse 7, chapter 9. Paul does say, each man should give as he decided. He doesn't say, each man should not give. Friends, giving is not a matter of you have to. Giving is just one of those tests. If you have understood the God you worship, you will become like Him. And the pinnacle of God's grace is that He gave Himself. So, giving is a reflection of God's grace. But again, you have to decide in your heart what you're going to give. Don't give reluctantly and don't give under compulsion. Compulsion. Don't give under the emotional trigger of certain financial campaigns. This week, as we were reading through Scripture, through our program of reading through the New Testament in a year, in our family devotions, we got to the passage in Luke 11, uh, where Jesus has a word of admonishment, a word of challenge to the Pharisees. And here's a word that challenged us, too, as we read this. Jesus says, he rebuked the Pharisees. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe, mint, and rue, and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. You know what's striking about that challenge? Jesus is acknowledging that just because someone is a tither, and by the way, they were tithing not just from their money. They were tithing from their produce. They were tithing from everything, from their herbs. Can you imagine? But just because you are a tither does not mean that your heart is in the right place. You can be a giver for the wrong motives. We know the story of Simon the Magi. We know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Point is that our giving should not be because We have to. The point is God is not interested merely or merely in your giving. As as verse 8 says, God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a giver who gives with joy, who gives willingly, who gives because his own heart has been transformed by the grace of God. A heart that is overflowing with joy. And that was one of the characteristics of the believers in Macedonia. Despite their extreme poverty, their hearts were overflowing with joy. Dear friends, whenever we give, it is an opportunity for us to express our joy. Do you see it that way? Do you see your giving as an occasion of joy? Or do you give just because the Bible said so? Two challenges for us today. One, do you give? Do you reflect the grace of God in your life? Number two, do you give cheerfully? This goes as a package, it's not one and then you move on to the other, it's a package. When we live our Christian lives, such a heart and attitude towards giving changes so that we reflect God's desire for us as we give. And when we give this way, something happens, not only in our hearts, but something happens in the body of Christ. And this is a third point, would be a short point on what happens when we give this way, when we give gracefully, when we give joyfully it causes others to worship. And that's the point of verses 12 through 15 of chapter 9. Look at verse 12. Giving, such giving produces thanksgiving to God. Verses 13, such giving causes men to glorify God. And finally, such giving causes men to pray because they have seen God's grace acted out in our lives. These three aspects of worship are done not by those who give, but by those who receive. So that, friends, dear brothers and sisters, when we give this way, we cause worship to happen all around us. We cause worship, we cause glory to God, we cause thanksgiving to God to be raised to His name because of such giving. Giving is a sign is a reflection of God's grace. Is rooted in God's grace. Giving is an occasion for joy. And thirdly, giving is an opportunity, is an occasion for worship. My dear friend, dear brothers and sisters, for all the bad reputation that giving money to the church has acquired among believers and disenchanted Christians, this text reclaims the act of giving as being rooted in God's grace, as a reflection of God's grace, and as an occasion of us doing it with joy. It reminds us of God's indescribable gift. A similar picture was given to us in Acts 4, 32 and 33, where the apostle writes, All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And hear what happened. And much grace was upon them all. That's what happens when we live out the grace of God through our giving. Emperor Julian of the Roman Empire was one of the emperors that tried drastically, with all his power, to suppress Christianity and bring back the pagan influences on the, on the emp- Roman Empire. And at the end of his life, he just could not do it. He wrote to one of his friends a letter and shared his frustration and the reason why Christians were succeeding and, they c- and he could not stop their influence. And here's what Emperor Julian said. Their success lies in their charity to all. They take care not only of their own poor, but ours also. Because friends, when we give, it is a reflection of God's grace who has transformed our lives. Now I praise God for the generous spirit that this congregation has. So in some aspects, and I'm speaking now at the Parkless Baptist Church to its members, in some aspects, this sermon was preaching to the choir. And I praise God for that. I praise God when I have to preach to the choir. However, if there's someone here that is hearing this message, and in your life, you are not practicing graceful giving, I encourage you to examine your heart. Is it possible that you may have not understood the grace of God in the first place? It's not enough that we as a congregation display this grace. Graceful giving is a challenge for our own hearts individually, not simply for the congregation at all. If you personally are struggling with having a generous spirit, if you are stingy about giving, If you feel uncomfortable about giving a portion of your income to the Lord, ask yourself whether or not you truly understood the grace of God. If you are here today and are among those believers who feel a grudge against the church and all those believers who put a pressure and emphasis on giving and you accuse them they're they're all about money, my dear friend, I would just challenge you to examine your own heart and see if you understood truly the grace of God. Now, Christians ask, how much should I give? The Macedonians were praised to give as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Now, in the Old Testament, we have a very clear indication that 10% 10 was what God required. And in the New Testament, we only have one reference to that percentage, 10%. So should Christians in the New Testament give 10%? And they ask, should we give out of the net or out of the gross? I I don't know. That's not the point. You know what the point is? The point is, let me put it this way, living on the other side of Calvary, our standard for giving is not 10%. Our standard for giving, our example of giving is Jesus Christ, who gave himself who became poor so that we might become rich. And many New Testament scholars agree that giving in the New Testament ought to go beyond 10%. Start that with 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 a starting point. Use that as a starting point and go above and beyond because of God's indescribable gift. Now, for those of you who are new Christians and have never practiced the tithe, start where you are and move towards more. Let it be in your lifestyle that you reflect the grace of God. We cannot determine that for you. It's not about hitting a certain mark, making the tithe or not. It's about letting the grace of God work in your life and determining the quality of your life, the standard of your life, so that you can give gracefully and that you can give joyfully. Now, for those of you who are not believers. Let me make it again clear and strong. Christianity is not about money. It is about the grace of God. But one of the ways the grace of God shows up in the way it transforms us is that we start thinking less of ourselves and more of Him. And we can only do that by the grace of God. Let us pray. Father, our hearts this morning express our deepest thanksgiving for the indescribable gift you gave us. Lord, we pray that your gift would transform our hearts so radically that we ourselves would become graceful and joyful givers. That we would give not because we have to, not because the Bible says so, not because the church says so, but because we have truly understood the grace of God. Father, I pray that this grace would transform our lives so much that others, by the, by the way they see our generous spirit, would see your grace in our lives and be drawn to you. Father, forgive us for often failing at displaying this grace in our lives. We pray that we would examine our hearts and we pray that we would give ourselves to you totally and let your power, your gospel, change us inside out.